Hey there, welcome aboard. This is Comparing Apples to Oranges. This is Mike. And this is Bob. And we are coming at you with another episode of the podcast where we take two things that aren't in the same genre, that belong in the same category, and decide which one is better using a special set of criteria designed especially for this episode. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, this is a fun one. Yeah. Um, we'll get into the category, but yeah, these are two very different genres that we're dealing with today. Bob brought these two up. Um, he suggested the category, which was a very interesting one. Uh, he sent me a link to a letterbox article. Is list? that the right? Yeah. Letterbox list. Which is originally from an AV club contributor named it's Scott Tobias oh look at you yeah so this is it's a list by a gentleman named Wilkins he's a pro uh yeah he pays for letterbox (laughs) (laughs) oh anyway maybe he's just like he gets it for free like his mom bought it for him like Uh, that's what he asked for for his birthday that's who knows but anyway he formally uh put all of the um, suggestions from the Scott Tobias because called the new cult canon and it's like a really easy way to interact with uh, this list it shows you all of the covers of the movies and you can click on them and read a little bit or also uh, when you click on the link you can read the review from Scott Tobias originally um, so I think this this brings up a lot of good things off the bat one when you hear cult movie, Bob, what do you start thinking? So, immediately when I hear cult movie, the first thing that pops into my mind, and I think it's true for most people, is Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, Would you consider that the original? I probably. I, I feel like that's been definitely the original. For our, for our generation, that's the first time I remember hearing something called a cult movie. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like it is one of the first movies that gained a, a passionate following of people that would go to the movie theaters to watch this movie over and over for years and decades after its release that is full of inside jokes and references among fans and you know references to obscure lines that everyone gets. Um, and to me, that would be a cult movie um, and that, that, that kind of gets into the purpose of the new cult canon is um, in his first article in the series on the AV Club he talks about his time in university I think he went to film school or studied film or something and he read a series of books I forget who the gentleman was who wrote them but he wrote the series of books in the 80s about oh Danny Peary thank you Danny Peary wrote these series of books about original cult movies from you know i don't know the i think presumably even the 20s up till up through the 80s because i think like one of the first ones was uh not well clearly not one of the first ones if it starts in the 20s but um the nightmare no night of the living dead the original one like that was yeah it was popular amongst a certain group of people but like nobody liked zombie movies wasn't a thing back then so it was like yeah passionate among a small base Um, probably didn't make much money in its theatrical run Um, almost certainly didn't get awards not traditionally well made but like that's kind of 
I think, and that's what we're going to talk about with our two movies specifically. You can't say that they are like cinematically like films that you would recommend to people who are like, oh, yeah, this is a perfect example of how you're supposed to shoot this, or like this is um, an example, an exemplar of like filming and editing and you know dialogue and cast chemistry. It's like these things have the these movies have those things but it's not in the way that you would it's not a blockbuster no exactly it's not a crowd pleaser it's and and the and the two movies we're talking about today are certainly not shoddily made like say plan nine from outer space would be a cult movie right Um, and i think these movies are very very professionally made with a lot of artistic touch but they're not like you said like the trappings of a blockbuster movie Mm -hmm. it's not what you would you wouldn't emulate this if you were trying to make something for everybody Mm. and I don't and I think it says a lot about these two movies that these both of the directors it was not their first go round and I think that is sort of common not common it shows up a lot in these in this new cult canon where a lot of these movies are it's the first of its kind or it's the first movie by a director that went on to sort of figure themselves out yeah and i think that like you mentioned playing nine i i would qualify that as campy but that doesn't sure. necessarily mean that it's not a cult movie no so no, i mean uh rocky horror is full of camp right you know? yeah that's a perfect um, example i'm interested in the phrase cult canon do you think that like it so we didn't invent the phrase and so <laughs> it it's it's sort of up for the whole idea of anything being canon is always sort of up to debate and it's sort of you know meant to be discussed but what do you think like what would make something what, what what's something that wouldn't fit in cult canon something that wouldn't fit in cult uh, you mean like a non-blockbuster type thing that not necessarily fit? like if somebody's like oh i i like, you know, like me Ghostbusters fr- wouldn't be a cult canon. Okay, that's a good one. Because, like, it's like it's people are like, oh, me and my popular. friends love this movie watch a thousand times. Right. Like Avatar or Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, yeah. they have fans, but it's Dedicated all, fan bases. But it's too successful? What do you think? Or it's too safe? What do you think would disqualify it from being part of a cult canon? Or the new cult canon? I think, um... It's a good question. Either... I don't think a movie necessarily has to be unpopular to be a cult movie. Um, like, I'm, I'm looking at this list now, and uh, Babe, Pig in the City, is in the new cult canon. And inexplicably, sure Babe almost. was a very successful movie. I have no idea. I, I can't tell you. But I think also, you know, maybe that... What he's saying is that there there's another level to this movie another level of appreciation that can be found in a popular movie or um, or it's something like um, you know primer yeah where well, yeah. yeah I'm sure like no one saw it but if I don't you like know. time travel movies yeah you know you've probably seen it was it in theaters is that a mean question I, know. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Arthur uh, another uh, co-host of the show and I watched it and we had, I think, his TV just cranked up to, like, 
80 on the volume. And we're like, man, if we don't hear what he says, we're not going to understand because I don't know what's happening right now. That was It was an intentional? I don't know. Like that That's another movie that was also uh, a shoestring budget movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also under 90 minutes. So it sort of like has fit more than one of... I think you might have recommended it for one of I think of I did, actually, okay. now that I'm thinking about it. But, uh, so that's the thing is, some of these movies, they they do weird things. They do, I guess, like, uh, if you mentioned going to film school, if somebody had seen one of these movies, they would have been like, oh, you, you this wouldn't pass the, the test for lighting, or this wouldn't pass the test for costume this one it passed the test for like you have your camera moving in untraditional ways yeah even acting styles or you know whatever it may be yeah subject Um, matter yeah i think another important aspect of the cult movie is that there is a very usually a very deft or intentional artistic touch usually by the director or the creator of the film um sometimes the actor can contribute to that or actors um but but i think there's always going to be something that rubs against the grain in any of these movies yeah not necessarily polarizing but like in there's a specific vision or a message that is for a group of people but not for everyone yes um, are you ready to start discussing the two movies? Let's get into it. Okay, so uh, we've got... I want to get this right, because there's a lot of words that I'm going to say, and I want to make sure I try to get them in the correct order. <laughs> okay, we're, we're going to start with Punch Drunk Love is a 2002 American comedy drama film, not a dramedy, because I don't like that portmanteau. I, I don't know where I... I'm just putting a line in the sand. There's certain portmanteaus... Yeah, I'm no, like, thanks. I appreciate that. Dramedy just seems like it's just a good drama it's if it cute. has comedy in it. Right. And I wouldn't consider this a dark comedy or a black comedy, but I do consider it a dra- a comedy drama. I think that's an no. okay no, analysis. Yeah. And... Yeah, uh, we can get into it later, but I, there is darkness to the movie. Absolutely. But it, it's not a dark movie. Correct. Um, it is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, known to his followers as P.T. Anderson. One of the kings. Um, can you name some other movies that you liked by him? Because I can think... I've, I've only got Boogie Nights. Um, I wasn't a huge... so. Boogie Nights is incredible. I think I... It's, it's not the same... But you know when, like, there are too many things that are similar... Not similar. Like, he... Magnolia and and Boogie Nights, in my head, were the same because I saw Boogie Nights first. And I know that's the order they came out, but, like, in a lot of ways, people thought that he perfected his storytelling when he got to Magnolia, but I was mad when he got to... Like, it seemed forced to me. And And I think Magnolia is a really, really great movie, but... Mm -hmm. Out of those two, I'd prefer Boogie Nights. I think the focus of Boogie Nights helps it. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of shaggy dog story of Magnolia is quite a thing to behold when right. you watch the, what is it, three hours long or something. Yeah, I don't, I'm, and that's the thing is like, I don't want to complain that it's long because Boogie Nights is over two hours. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just that, like, it, I think Boogie Nights was the first time I saw a movie that 
figured out how to do it so perfectly because it it was in the era of Pulp Fiction where you're getting this yeah. like not necessarily a linear storytelling just like overlapping and like moving throughout different perspectives and it's, it's just it's almost like it's a series of scenes yeah than one continuous yes and I know, think A to B narrative why I liked the Boogie Nights better than Magnolia is because this, the content matter was almost ridiculous for the seriousness of the production. 100%. Like, why are you trying so hard? It's just about, like, this Low guy who... Right, this guy who just... He wants to be the best porn star ever, and he's, like, practicing karate, and, like... <laughs> And then you cut to Magnolia, and it's like trying to make a... In my... This isn't fair. I put on it that it was trying to make a statement. And I'm just like... I thought he was trying too hard. And that's because I I didn't like it as much as this thing that I could take above face value. Because it's like, oh... You know, it's just Philip Sermon Hoffman's just this, like, confused guy. And he's at, like, you know, at a pool party. It's like, oh my god, there's, like, so much emotion here... Where it seemed like it seemed like the you you got more out of Boogie Nights because it seemed like a joke, but it was really well done. Where right. Magnolia was really well done, and so it was easier for me to criticize it. But it was. I mean, I don't think you're speaking out of turn. I I do think Magnolia is very much about something, trying to say something. I mean, it, it it's a movie about like meaning like yeah. the meaning of life right and what does it mean to be a person uh you know in society basically you know what's it like to live in in la in yeah. the 90s um but uh with with pt anderson you know we mentioned those two movies uh we'd be remiss to me- not to mention my favorite movie of his one of my favorite movies i've ever seen i think one of easily the best movies about America there will be blood um, I haven't seen it I'm sorry <laughs> I that I only it, know, it took me years to watch it and I know that uh, you know I was mad that it beat No Country for Best Picture because I love that movie right. love me some Coen Brothers and I was like uh, whatever then I saw it however many years ago and I was floored when I watched it um one of the few movies that I watched it again the next day. I loved it so much. Um, you know, the movie opens up with like 10 minutes of silence and just like dissonant music while he's uncovering his first oil well. And, you know, it's about the building of wealth and capitalism and religion and how those intertwine and, you know, the, the death of religion at the hands of American capitalism and all this stuff. Not to mention, you know, uh, yeah. one of the greatest actors of his generations, maybe his best performance. Yeah. In um, Daniel Day Lewis, but yeah, I mean the movie's phenomenal, and yeah. it, you know, just another P.T. Anderson. Um, it seems I think what we can say about him is he nothing. It, it doesn't seem like content intimidates him. It seems like he is no. just he's willing to do whatever, and uh, yeah, the, definitely the, whatever. And he's he's able to handle it. He's a guy who clearly. Um, likes to make and is good at making movies about big ideas, yeah. huge civilizational ideas, but he can also make 
Punch Drunk Love and that's, or Inherent Vice. It's funny that you bring that up. He is quoted as saying when he finished Magnolia, he's like, I need to do something less crazy. <laughs> Which would be literally anything and would then be less crazy I than Magnolia. Said, I want to do a comedy that's like under an hour and a half. Mission and he, success. And he did it. And I, he said he wanted to do a movie with Adam Sandler and his casting director or whomever was like, who? Like the, <laughs> and they're always like, oh, you know, the little Nicky guy. I'm like, he was also in Big Daddy. Yeah, I mean, and he, Happy Gilmore. They mention um, his first serious movie was Funny People, but I don't consider that a, fun, a serious movie. I just consider it a, like... Not comedy. I saw it in theaters. Okay, I too. want to say the first week or so it came out. It, it's um, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen. It was pretty good. Do you consider that Adam Sandler as a serious actor in that movie? Because I thought he was just playing what Judd Apatow thought Adam Sandler was like. You know when yeah. like they say that Eminem can really do serious acting, right. but he was just Eminem-ing? Right. He's just like... Wait, what's my name? Is it Marshall? They're like, no. He's like, I'm lost. <laughs> they had to have like a giant, bit, giant poster board with his like, your name is the your name Steve. Whenever anybody says Steve, you have to look at them. <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it's it's not Adam Sandler isn't playing his character right. that he plays in right. the Happy Madison universe. Um, but yeah, it's not exactly a serious role. Right. Um. I mean, I don't know if he really plays any serious roles outside of this and Uncut Gems. Um, so there was, I recently heard on uh, the Doughboys, they were like counting down the top five greatest, like they saw a list of the greatest Sandler movies. And yeah. like, so uh, they were like saying their favorites because for some reason the guy who made the list said Click was the best Adam Sandler. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, but apparently like Adam Sandler's in a movie about a guy whose family all dies in the 9-11 attacks. So like called Rain Over Me. And so I don't oh, yeah. know. Okay. I don't know. This definitely isn't his first, but it's definitely his most successful. Yeah. Uh, so this is 2002. Well, Punch Drunk Love, I think, is his first. Absolutely. It's supposed to, yeah, just yeah. two. Sandwiched squarely in between... Uh, Don't do it. Oh, no. Little Nicky. Oh, no. And Mr. Deeds. Uh, so, I liked Mr. Deeds, <laughs> but I wasn't ready for... I, Little Nicky's, the, like, the go-to, like, this guy fucking sucks. That's like, the black sheep of the... Or Grown Ups, or Grown Ups 2, yeah, or... or is Pixels him? I don't think so. I don't know. But, any, like... Any of his stuff on Netflix, people just... It's easy to shit on Adam Sandler. Very easy. Because he is quoted as saying, I just want to make movies where I can take my friends on vacation. Mm -hmm. And I don't... It, whose fault is it that they keep giving him, like, tens of millions of dollars? Right. They work. Is it my fault? <laughs> it, for, let's just say Paul Thomas Anderson said, you know what? I think he can do really good work. And his production agent was like, you're the boss, big guy. You just did Magnolia. <laughs> right. Tom, you had Tom Cruise in here. You had, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, like, just Heather Graham. You had, who was the old, it wasn't Burt Reynolds. 
Burt Reynolds. Yeah, it is. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... And then you will... Like, I can't see it in the future. You will, Moore. you will go on to, like, direct, you know... <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. And they said... This is, so they were being dicks. They're like, Punch Drunk Love is the only Criterion Collection movie that Adam Sandler is in. They're like, or no, that's wrong. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> it's the only Adam Sandler Criterion Collection movie. It's like, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. You don't need to say it. That's just <laughs> that's mean. But apparently, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is the only person to direct both Adam Sandler and Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> so, wow, elite company. I mean says a lot uh what else do i want to tell you before we talk about the plot um oh so it did uh just about break even with a production budget of 25 million when they talk about production yeah. that also includes like advertising for the, the movie and stuff. so like yeah i don't necessarily know what this movie how much it cost to make the movie but uh, I don't think it was advertised that strongly, so yeah. I just remember the say poster. Twenty million, yeah, to actually make it. Yeah, and then <laughs> was half of that Sandler's salary? I don't know. Cause, I don't know. Because there's like so the article. No, he could command a lot. The article that like was I mean you just got done with Little Nicky, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the article that was talking about the um, production assistant who was like somewhat nervous. Uh, to hire Sandler, uh, had Sandler, like, very, he's, like, he didn't think he was gonna do a good job on the movie. He's, like, hey, I just saw your, the movie Magnolia and those frog scene just blew my mind. Are you yeah. sure I'm gonna do okay? <laughs> and we get a lot of that. a lot about uh, we, Adam Sandler. We get a lot of that in the acting. Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems like while it seemed awkward to watch and difficult and like at times physically uncomfortable it must have been even harder to do that in front of a camera more than once yeah like well to be as restrained as he is through so much of the movie when he i don't know had never done that while on camera in his career and the thing i mean like I have to immediately bring up Chris Farley because, like, he's he's the version... He's our Jim Belushi, and, but we got to know him a little bit more. Yeah. And we got to see, like, how vulnerable and sensitive and self-conscious he was. And you find out that a lot of the, like, you know, like, um, the, the famous over-the-top comedians who have these, like, giant personalities, that's a character they're playing, and they're actually, right. like super insecure and like well yeah and I think he I don't know I mean maybe maybe Farley was one of those first actors where yeah it was such a larger than life comedic persona but it was clear that that comedic persona existed to hide a very deep sadness and that's the whole like the Chris Farley show was funny because it's like him interacting with like stars that he liked and he was just like constantly berating himself and that you think back to like robin williams and you're like oh he's so frenetic you're like no this is like literally manic depression literally all That's, yeah. i don't know how to te- like this yeah. is textbook and so like for adam sandler to not break and not like do a fart joke or a shitty voice like 
that I think that's another layer of restraint that we see. Yeah. Not just because his character is literally like brimming over with anxiety and rage. Yeah, he does get to pop off with this anger. He he lets loose the uh, classic Sandman anger. Yeah. But, yeah, you don't get the goofy voices. You don't get the the cheap laugh stuff. And so... That he's very good at, but you you don't get it here. And there's, there's two other comedians who have dabbled in series that come to mind. It's Jim Carrey and Will Ferrell... And the first two movies that they both did, I think Stranger Than Fiction for Will Ferrell mm-hmm. and then The Truman Show for Jim Carrey, those were those are not the only serious movies they did, but it was the first serious movies they did. And both of them got to, like, Jim Carrey did his shtick a couple times in The Truman Show. Yeah. And Will Ferrell got to be, like, s- slightly hysterical. A couple times when he's like yelling at Emma Thompson's voice when he's brushing his teeth, like, and they put that shit, the Jim Carrey and the Will Ferrell character in the trailer because yes. they know they're like, don't worry, That's guys, the marketable. You can't make a a trailer for Punch Drunk Love where Adam Sandler's not other about to cry or <laughs> screaming because that's that's his that's all of him all of the time. Yeah, yeah. In this movie. It's, yeah, he's a very deeply lonely man. Clearly anxiety-ridden. I mean, comes out and says he's depressed in so few words uh, early in the movie. And, yeah, it's it's bottled up and it's bottled up and it's bottled up. And then he pops. Right. uh, You know, I, I don't know, three, four times in the movie. Right. And I don't know... See, that's the thing is, like, I don't consider this necessarily a comedy as so much, like, absurd at times. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, because, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman screaming, fuck you, shut up. The phone argument scene is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And and that is that. Shut the the fuck up. What do you... Shut the fuck up and calm down. No, what do you want? (laughs) I'm going to start more phone conversations like that. Shut the fuck up. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Who else do you talk to on the phone? Don't do this at work. No one. Don't do this at Because you keep telling them to shut the fuck up. They keep hanging up. Um, so I want to I read to you how they tried to... We're not going to go into the whole plot because that's not the point of the movie. No. But no, I want to really. read to you what they said the plot was on Wikipedia. This movie follows an entrepreneur with social anxiety in love with his sister's co-worker. Yeah. Also, also, (laughs) Barry Egan is a bachelor who owns a company that markets themed toilet plungers and other... Plungers. (laughs) That's the gold in the movie. And other novelty items. Not true, it's just the plungers. It's literally just plungers. He has seven overbearing sisters who ridicule and emotionally abuse him regularly. So he leads a lonely life punctuated by fits of rage and social anxiety. That, and that, yeah, and the sisters, it's so funny, the movie starts, he's by himself in a garage. Which I thought it was a dream. And I... It seemed like a dream. I just didn't know what was happening. It was, you know... 
He's in the garage. He's on the phone uh, trying to work out his um, he- healthy choice. Some hard deets. Uh, yeah, we're going to have some deets to the deal. And, uh, you know, we can get into that in a minute. But then, you know, it's crack of dawn and he walks out to the street. And a car is driving on the street and blows out a tire and just tumbles, like Michael flies All right, we're down the road. Ba- like bad boys car flip. And then a van pulls up and screeches and stops in front of him and drops out a... Uh, what we find out is a harmonium. Harmonium, that's what it's called. Yep. looks like a small piano. Yes. And, and then the van peels off and pulls away. And I'm left there and I'm just like... The first thing I thought of was the frog scene in Magnolia. I'm like... Is this how this movie's starting? Is this real? What is it's, happening? It seemed dreamlike because of the like the way it shot the like the randomness, which isn't a word yes. you should use that much, and then like the violence. But it is right. It, it's it's very seemingly random, but I think it does a really good job of creating an atmosphere of anxiety. Yeah. Oh man. It's like that. this shit is just happening in this guy's life. Yes. And he has no way to control it. Isn't how I react. And we get just a really good um, wordless introduction, in, basically into Barry's mindset, his anxiety and the world around him. And then you know, cut to uh, he's in the, uh, the, the you know a meeting with these hotel managers trying to sell his fungers. And every two <laughs> minutes, Barry, your sister's on line one. Barry, your sister's on line two. And I thought, and their voices sound similar on the phone. I'm like. Is this the same sister calling him over and over? Right. And then it clicks like, oh my god, this guy has seven sisters. Which seemed like... And they're all... I couldn't tell what was a joke, too. Right, yeah. Because it starts with like, she's like, you better fucking come to this fucking party, you fucking (laughs) idiot. And I'm just like, oh no! And then... You go back, you're like, I don't have time to chat. Chat? Chat? Who are you? You fucking chat. (laughs) Who are you chatting with? Like, uh, it's just so very mean. true to life <laughs> so piece of dialogue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so mean. He goes to the party. Remember when we called you gay boy? We <laughs> called you gay boy and you threw the hammer through the thing. This is clearly a very traumatic memory for him. Remember when we called you gay boy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, and then he <laughs> drop kicks a plate glass window. Yeah. And has to talk to Robert Smeagol about yes. it. Yes, and uh, uh, <laughs> talks to Robert <laughs> Smeagol about it. Uh, the doctor, aka dentist, <laughs> Which, but he yeah. says a line yeah. that I wrote it down immediately. He, you know, he, he goes to uh, his brother-in-law, Robert Smeagol, and says, "You know, I, I think I'm depressed. I'm sad all the time. Can you, can you help me?" And Robert Smeagol's like. Well, I'm a dentist, but if you want me to find you a psychiatrist, I can help with that. And he says, um, Robert Smeagol says, well, you know, what's wrong? And Adam Sandler, Barry replies, I don't know if anything's wrong because I don't know how other people are. And that just struck me so deep because it's so true when you're dealing with any kind of stress or trauma or dramatic a depressive period in your life it's so insular and you I mean that's the, I mean that's the point you don't yeah. know what's going on in the interior right. of other people and you don't know if you're wrong right and your feelings are and that's so while you mentioned that like how um, there will be blood starts silent this movie effectively could like it starts 
in media race, but not yeah. in like the traditional way where it's in the middle of the action. Right. Like this is in the middle of the most mundanity <laughs> that you could you couldn't work up. You're like this guy's at work early. What? Like, but he's also taking care of some the business. most important business in his life. Can so, we can we talk about this, Mike? It is so. I'm gonna in the in the right in writing the elements of the healthy choice frequent flyer miles subplot line. Who comes up with these phrases? Yes. This is just the plot. <laughs> the, the, that is the cellar door of uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> that, that sentence. Anderson PT was inspired by the real-life story of David Phillips, yes. who successfully amassed over a million frequent flyer miles with the same scheme. He, I think it was something like 1.4 million frequent flyer miles and I think that it's, uh, the, the, the actual guy they accumulated. They had to sell, settle it in court. Yeah. Because they're like, they're like, no, and he's like, no. No. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, he became a million mile member to a certain airline, and then he applied a few hundred thousand other miles to other airlines. Right. Once you get a million, you, you get your uh, your perks. Um, you don't need to tell me, <laughs> Mr. Globetrotter over here. Yeah, um, me and the Harlem boys. But uh, oh, Bill Cosby. No, I meant the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> yeah, Bill Cosby. He's a Harlem Globetrotter? He is a former honorary Harlem Globetrotter. I they, feel dirty. They kicked him out. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. Um, but, They're yeah. going to be on the right so, side of history. So the movie opens with him negotiating. Uh, so are you sure? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I think if I'm correct, uh, the, the reward cash value is greater than the value of the products. He, he says out loud, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the guy says... At one point, he just says, "Oh, that's a typo." Like he acknowledges yeah. that, like, because the guy's yeah, yeah, probably right. I'm not a lawyer. You need to leave. But yeah, absolutely brilliant. He finds out, like uh, Mr. David Phillips does in real life, that um, the value of 500 miles, which with is, a coupon makes it a thousand. Right. Just the the standard deal, the 500 miles for 10 UPC. 500 miles is worth like a dollar. Yeah. Um, but you can buy 10 pudding cups with individual UPCs for a quarter a piece. Right. Or, 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 or maybe the 500 miles was $5 or something. So, you know, you spend $1.50 and you get $5 worth of free miles. And so that's this whole personal backstory subplot, right. as subplot. Wikipedia calls it. Accumulating these miles. I'm, so it already happened in real life. But it's such a weird thing that I don't feel like it's artificial in the movie. Does that make sense? It's one of those things where it's it's literally like, well, like, damn, man, my life's a movie. You got all these miles. But it's also so specific that, yeah. like, how do you even come up with this just, unless someone hasn't tried this? Just buying so much you know, I don't want to say scam because it wasn't a scam. Uh, but, you know, so, some guy actually pulled this plot off. Yeah. And... I think that's what this movie's. <laughs> I I don't know what's going on, and I don't think it's a big deal that I don't, and that's why I thought, that's one of the reasons I like this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in, pretty early in the movie. Um, it, the open, you know, the first opening scene, and even into the, the party with the sisters, I was like, 
I'm into it. This is goofy. Luis Guzman's in it. Yeah, he's, he is. he's hilarious. Um, yeah, he doesn't get a whole lot of room to shine in this movie, but um, he's always a good presence. Yeah, it must be when the when Emily Watson shows up for the second time. Okay. And it's like, okay, some things are starting to come together. Um, Ooh, fun fact. It, I love fun facts. Did you know that like the person in red following him around at the the market that was her? Really? So she's. I noticed so that, the person so in that's red. Technically, the second time we see her. Yeah, gotcha. Which I'm okay. like, oh. So this is why some of my internet research did help. But yeah. I actually, it was just the IMD, IMDb, IMDb trivia. Yes. That's where I got all my facts. Yeah. Okay, so, so uh, you know, he goes, up, he goes to the party, he says the really poignant line to Robert Smeagol, and then he goes back to his apartment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he kicks off the phone sex plot line. Uh, but just his existence in the apartment and the way the camera moves in the apartment and the set of the apartment so deeply and accurately captures just what it is like to be lonely right as an adult yeah which just is by yourself in your own place very difficult to watch and there's nothing to do yeah and it just you know it's very Quiet and there's just a lot of dark space. It's dark. Yeah. Um, it, it feels very cheap, his apartment. Um, I mean, the suit he wears that his sisters all make fun of him for itself. It's a nice color. I, I like the kind of bright blue, but it's a cheap suit, yeah. too. And he just kind of has that existence about him. And it that's when the movie really sunk its teeth into me. Like, there's really something going on. This movie... I don't know if it's trying to send a message, but it's it's really descriptively great about a certain type of person's life. So much so that once he gets the call the next morning where we find out that, like, it's a scam, Yeah, I just figured out, like, I just determined that it's going to suck for him. Like, right. that, right. Yeah, yes, he's sad, yes, he's lonely, and... The world just shits on those people. However, it doesn't have to go that way, according to the movie. The movie's like, we're gonna we're gonna give you something. We're gonna give you a lifeline. Mm-hmm. For this, even though this person is sad, he doesn't always have to be sad. Right. And like, you just get just it's just weird from there on out. It's like it, somewhat more absurd almost. It's very absurd, and it's almost. It, it, it's not totally absurd, I would say, up until after the Hawaii trip, Ooh. where he goes to Hawaii. I'm going to stop you right there. Remember when they go on the date and he just... just <laughs> yes. He has to have a conversation with an adult where he's just lying through his teeth. <laughs> when he starts... And the guy has to call him sir the whole time. And then when... he just says, I'm going to break your fucking head. <laughs> When he starts explaining the healthy choice uh, plot to Lana, and he's talking very hushed, and it's because like he's, it's, a it's big like he's deal. sharing a state secret. It's a big deal. It was so funny. It's a big <laughs> like, deal. It's a big deal. But, you know, anyone can do it. You gotta um, commit, though. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's yeah. The the dinner scene was 
had a fair share of absurdity. <laughs> he he gets says, kicked out of the rest on his first date, now. and she just rolls with it. We have to leave now. I don't like this place. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's... it's uh, there's a theory I have, and I don't believe it, necessarily. But I think there's, there's something there that... Um, when they finish their Hawaii trip and they're walking uh, away from the camera into the distance and they oh, do yeah. the, uh, the fade, yeah. the, you know, the, the, to their hands. The, the, yeah. They do the, the, don't know what you call that technique, but you know, the circle fade in and, and the scene, you know, fades out. And I, that's when reality ends. And then for the rest of it, it's, it's a dream because then they get back home and yeah. they're driving home and, the four blonde just men gets annihilated. Annihilated him, and then he just John Wicks their ass <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. kicks their ass. And then he she goes to the hospital. Then he goes flies out to Provo and he confronts Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's just it's two minutes and it's over. And he just you know I have a love in my life and it gives me a strength that you can't imagine. You just say that's that mattress man. He like and he runs, says that's that and that's it. He has the the phone. Yes. That's a corded phone in his yes. hand when he goes to the airport, too. And then, like, like that's a big thing, where he, like, he has to hold on. I don't know. Right. Anyway. That I'm thinking, that's right. A, that's a good... From that initial phone yeah. argument with uh, between him and Philip Seymour Hoffman, he has that phone yeah. white-knuckled in his hand from L.A. to Provo and back. <laughs> and okay so you're bringing up something that we're going I'm going to discuss more uh, specifically with both of these movies in a second but like the fact that the movie lets you the audience interpret something that isn't explicitly laid out I think that's sort of a uh, a key part of what makes a good cult movie too, yeah is like you get to, as the observer, participate in the creation of meaning in a way that, like, you can't watch Die Hard and make up a subplot. Right. And then, like, fan theories are fun because they are absurd to a point, but almost... And, and totally extra textual. But that's because the, the text that exists has, like bubbles or holes or room for interpretation. Or, or room for stuff to happen outside. Right. right. No one's going to say like they're they're watching Love Actually and they're like oh well here's a subplot. You're like no no one. It's black and white. Yeah. We know what happens. Yeah. Actually this is going on. Yeah. And yeah well like a movie like this it, it's very much up to interpretation. Right. What exactly is going on? What is real? Um, this might be an opportunity to get into uh, some of the more um, artistic elements of the movie. Yeah. The music and the cinematography. Um, the the cinematography, the use of uh, like like near field shots, like the real close focus on a, on especially Adam Sandler, his face and everything else is fuzzed out right. in the background. Just sucks you into his mind space. That you know everything is so narrowed in on him. Um, the use of color in a number of scenes, uh, not to mention the interstitial scenes that are just 
pure yeah. abstract art. Right. <laughs> you know, for like, five, ten seconds at a time. color, like, like weaving in and out of... Yeah. Yeah, weird it's like, colored lens stuff. and It sounds like the harmonium. I don't... It's like weird... They do feature the harmonium yeah. in the soundtrack. Um, but, you know, that's, that's something I noticed that the soundtrack is very... It's almost avant-garde. It, like avant-garde classical. Yeah. Um, it's very weird, very anxiety-inducing. Um, I'd say, you know, may, maybe the best scene of the movie is when he's in the warehouse and Lana's in there with him and, and you know, she's trying to get to know him. But, you know, the forklift's falling over in the background and there's all this shit happening. And, and he's trying like, to put out these fires. Is it one? It feels like it's one shot. But it's like, it's the sort of thing where... Yeah, I don't know if it was one shot, but there were some long shots. Or a bunch of close-ups yeah. where it feels like... I, I keep wanting to use the word claustrophobic to describe Yeah, some a lot of, of claustrophobic this. elements. And... But that's how the movie is. They use the claustrophobic shots and this almost dissonant arrhythmic music Yes. when he's in these high states of anxiety... But then, especially when he goes to um, Hawaii with Lana, and they really, I guess at that point, fall in love with each other, it's these big, sweeping, yeah. lush, yeah. you know, string instruments, and it's this very classical, romantic like sound. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, the sound itself reflects his mind space throughout the movie. And I just thought that was really, it was a really unique aspect of the film. Yeah. It's not just a, like, one sense movie. It's like, you're you're being assaulted, right? In some scenes, and then you're sort of being like coaxed and calmed, and right. It's like the score is not of a piece. It, yeah. it is very scene specific. Yes, and you know, it, it the score is very intentionally meant to evoke emotions and add interpretation to the movie. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, are you ready to move to our next movie? I think it's a good time to move so to the next one. You mentioned uh, music and color, and <laughs> those are definitely on the forefront of the our next film. So it's called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, a 1989 crime drama. What do you think about that? Yeah. It's not untrue. There's some crime in it. There is some crime and it there is, is drama. It is high drama. <laughs> uh, written and directed by Peter Greenaway, which uh, Bob and I took a look at his... This guy's prolific. Like So, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did, has done um, like dozens of music videos as well. As far as feature films, not that many. Right. He's pretty... It feels like he's pretty selective. Where Peter Greenaway amongst like uh dozens of shorts has also like made a lot of motion pictures major motion pictures that we have not heard I don't know of. major they they seem very art housey yeah. very indie circuit I think what I should have said is full length yeah yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of feature length films uh and he is well known for um arts art house that's sort of his um milieu that he chose so it says that uh, we've got Richard Boehringer, he's our cook, uh, Michael Gambone, 
Gambon? Gambon? Yeah, is our thief. Helen Mirren is the wife, and then Alan Howard is her lover. One fact I found out about Alan Howard, he is the voice of the One Ring in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Really? Excellent. Um, He didn't do a lot of work after this. (laughs) I know that might surprise you, but... um, uh, The film is uh, rated X. Yes. So this is our third movie uh, that had that rating. Cobra was walked down from it. Yes. And then I think was it was it Child's Play? Was the other one? Was that X? There was it a, might have been. No, they walked it down. It, yeah, right. no, it, it right, started right. out there was a yeah, the screen, initial reading. Yeah, there yeah. was a screen screening of it or as X. But so this one is uh full of violence and uh nudity. Graphic violence. I wanna read that Graphic violence, graphic um scat that, let me read you the graphic. Fr- I want to read you this article. Uh, this, we're not getting full pen, but there is <laughs> close enough. It is a hot, <laughs> hot movie. Yeah. So uh, let me read to you this line uh, from this website that talked about like the fashion and color of it. It says mm. there is a dandy like flair to some of Albert. He's our thief. Our uh, um, Spica. Yeah. Our one of our main characters. Uh, there's a dandy flair to some of Albert and his gang's early costumes. In the opening mm-hmm. scene, he and his associates dress in white shirts with ruffles at the neck and lace cuffs that get in the way as they force-feed excrement to a man that owes Albert money. <laughs> just well, like, Spica also pisses on him, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the cuffs don't get in the way. No. So this movie is starts... So just how the camera moved in the other... Uh, in punch drunk glove to make you feel things this camera other doesn't move and makes mm-hmm. you watch or moves so that you're catching just glimpses of action in a like full ecosystem yeah um, oh yes yeah good word to use color is also really important in here oh. like to the point where uh, I read a handful it's, of different interpretations. It's an entire where it's, motif of where the they're movie. just like, "Oh, well, the red is hell, the white is heaven, and the middle is purgatory." I don't know, green. What's the the what's, kitchen was yeah, green? The ki- okay, so that's um, the kitchen then. Yeah. Uh, the exterior was lit in blue. Bath- uh, I have four colors written down. The dining room's red. Bathroom is kitchen white. lit in green. Blue is exterior. The bathroom is white. So, like, color is, and so much so that it's not just the scenery it's the costumes the costume. and the lighting when helen mirren you know it clicked pretty early on but when she you know she wears a red dress to the dinner i don't know if she wears it every night but at least in the first scene or, or the first night um because i think this movie takes place over four nights i believe they have different menus i think it's for yeah. yeah um she wears a red dress and when she walks into the white bathroom she's now wearing a white dress right with white gloves and like everything right yeah it's all matching it all changes in in the snap of the camera with almost like it, but the way it's shot it's like a the camera is still right when she walks in and then coasts over so you go through the fake wall and then right. she turns yeah, white as if it's wall. as if it's like a filter change but it's actually a cut so it's like this is intentionally done this way so you're supposed like you're supposed to catch it right and that you know, reading about this movie online, like I think there were a lot of people that thought, oh, yeah, this is a lighting trick. And it's like, no, that is she is wearing a different costume. Yeah. 
Um, so the plot of this movie uh, is the four, our four main characters. Um, the thief is a gang boss. Is a yeah, some sort of crime mm, boss, British crime boss. He is um, in love with the idea that he is the smartest person in the room at all times, mm-hmm. to the point that he is bossing around our cook, who is frustrated because uh, this guy took over the restaurant, is telling him what to do. He brings him two truckloads of meat, which is like fish and beef and whole pig, and uh, he's just like, I, I brought you some good stuff, and we, we know that it's been ill-gotten, and he's just like, no, we got plenty. Of Meanwhile, there's a like a small boy singing opera is that in the first yeah, scene like a castrato just way out, um, just way way in your face way early on yeah just like hey we got some opera Again, very intentionally i mean it is yeah. full they this this kid sing for like a minute <laughs> and it's like it's a it's like a church song Pure too. Opera. Yeah. yeah it's not just like oh i don't know the words it's, oh this is in english and it's singing about like god washing our sins away yeah didn't miss that one. <laughs> it's not a subtle film. So the cook is in charge of the kitchen and everyone follows his lead, but the thief is frustrated with that and sort of like swings his weight around, like gets in people's face, knocks shit over, puts his hand in like the sauce to taste it. Just like... A total bore. Yeah, letting everyone know that he's in charge and everyone's frustrated because he's not civilized. Right. Then we meet his his wife Helen Mirren, who is at when we meet her, she's like, she's not catatonic, but she's she's clearly detached. She's scared of him as well. And then we eventually meet her lover, who his name is Michael, and he likes reading books. He's also mm-hmm. at the restaurant, and yes, sitting across um, the room. The cook, uh, we don't necessarily know if he favors him initially, but we find out that. Uh, the, their love affair is facilitated by the cook in the kitchen. Yes. Um, they have a love affair. It gets found out. Uh, they have to flee. Try to flee. Um, they live in a book depository. Yeah. Which uh, is... Where Michael works. Was the first instance of me figuring out that this is not a straightforward story because at some point she's just like, what do you do here? And he's like, I read. And she's like, I don't know how to read. And I'm just like, what? What? <laughs> Why is this coming up now? <laughs> uh, then they get found out. Uh, he gets murdered and she seeks revenge. Um, that's the premise of the story. Is there anything that I missed that you want to add? Oh, no, just the plot. Because we're going to dive into yeah. it. Plot-wise, it's a, it's a pretty simple plot. It's a pretty... Um, a classic revenge tale. Um, I, I've heard the phrase used uh, a Jacobian revenge tale, um, where there is uh, you know uh, elements of violence to the revenge. Right. It's it's like uh, it's not necessarily ironic, but definitely like poetic justice. Yes. Is inflicted. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean the plot. Uh, that you know that that about does it. I, I think some of the more interesting parts of the movies are is I think, it, I think it's very clearly um, I don't think it's a strict allegory allegorical film it, but I think it very could, clearly makes connections to real world you know sociopolitical people things on the internet kept trying to say that it was obviously an allegory 
And I would argue that if I didn't get it, then it's not obvious. <laughs> so let me, this. I'm going to read to you what I found uh, through my searching. This is the allegory they said. This is Will, uh, Margaret Thatcher's England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So of the 80s, clearly, 1989. So Thatcher is our thief. The cook and his staff are the downtrodden commoner. I said, already off to a bad start then. His wife is Mother England, and her lover are the feckless intellectual class. It says, really, the politics could probably be broadly applied to many tyrannical administrations. Yeah. And then, uh, this is the guy from uh, the AV Club. He writes, uh... At least in the democracies that occasionally elect a power-hungry board into high office. Any specific references to the Thatcher quotes or policies escape my notice entirely. <laughs> this is actually by Scott Tobias, so yeah. that's a double double connect. Yeah. Uh, it's just... I Every time I read it, they're like, oh, this is about Thatcher's Britain. And I'm like, I just watched a movie called Hunger, which was about... Margaret Thatcher and like the Irish, the IRA like prison, uh, yeah, uh, hunger strike. And uh-huh. I'm like, that doesn't show up at all. Like, I don't who's who here. Like, I don't nobody's Irish, right? Like, they make a big deal about Michael being Jewish, uh, and by they I mean like, uh, yeah, Al- sure. Spicka and his cronies, does, yeah. but like that doesn't show up as part of the plot. And like, I don't traditionally remember. Right, it's just it's Margaret almost mentioned Thatcher in past days, you know, there's, specifically there's a line about it. anti-Semitic, but I'm just assuming. No, but I, you know, I do think that uh, there is a probably unfortunate uh, stereotype of Jews being, you know, part of the left-wing intellectual class, right? Uh, you know, Blame uh, for Marxists yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I guess I I could have connected it to Thatcher because what hit me immediately one of my first notes is um and this is before I knew his name the main dude just looks like a and acts like a pompous Tory mm-hmm. and uh Thatcher was a Tory and that's like the conservative yeah. one of the big conservative uh English uh political parties um but to me yeah I mean it 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 definitely landed like yeah this guy is he is the power mm-hmm. he is the owner he is the businessman he is the king criminal and Helen Mirren is whoever's being held hostage by that party yeah and um, yeah I, I guess I didn't you know the feckless intellectual class didn't land quite as much for me initially sure I guess it makes sense um, in hindsight, but yeah, just the strict allegory didn't make so much sense as like, yeah, this is a story about the elite mm-hmm. and how they consume utterly, relentlessly, without right. taste. They're rich, they can afford it, but there's no taste, there's yeah. no appreciation. Yeah. It's purely consumption. And the amounts of food that is served at each meal. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie. I don't know if I've seen that movie, many movies about food, but I haven't seen a movie ever that paid so much attention and detail to food itself. 
and it was like I mean this movie yeah. is gorgeous. Right. It is a gorgeous film. I think I have that in here. Uh, so Italian sh- an Italian chef prepared all the food for props. So it wasn't just yeah. like uh, this is uh, some nice soup. It's like no, we right. we got a like a guy knows what he's doing in here. Yeah, no, this is like a thousand dollars worth of food in every meal. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it it goes to show like so that. Tim Roth character is sort of the he's the sort of like the foil to what we expect. He's a crony we expect, but he's not totally with it. He's saying what... He's not, he's not totally with Spica? He's saying what someone who is of lower class who is a criminal would say in those contexts. Right, and he doesn't pick up on that. He should just say whatever his boss wants him to say, and right. so he's just like, "I don't. This is gross. I don't want to eat this." And he's just like, "No, it's good." And he's like mispronouncing everything, and like, like he knocks him over. He put like shoves some face his face and stuff, and it's just like he's yeah. Tim Roth is if Spica is Donald Trump, then Tim Roth is Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> they're all bad people, and now he can't. They're all bad. Him. Well, one of them is just clearly a huge dumbass. And now he can't practice law. Neither of them can practice law. So. Tim Roth, sorry, he can't practice law. <laughs> that guy's a great actor, too. Oh, yeah. Very he, good. He, I'm very pleased to see him. He always looks the same age, though. He's like, oh, yeah. This movie came out in 1989. I, but no, he always looks like he's like 40. Right. One. Never looks great. No. But he's always he always scares me a little bit. Oh, I don't yeah. know what he's up to. That was always a bit of menace. I don't know what he's capable of doing okay so let's talk more about so we talked about lighting we talked about the weird music uh so when you think allegory this is not the first movie i think of because it's also just like you i didn't need to understand what the connection the connections were to understand i don't want to say enjoy because this is a difficult movie to be like oh yeah i loved it but like Right. I I enjoyed it in that I experienced what I was supposed to. Oh yeah. I, and I'm just like this is a it's a journey. It was 2 hours. Apparently mm-hmm. there's a R-rated 95 minute one. I'm like the nudity scenes are not a half an hour. So where did that yeah. extra, what, what did they cut like this movie was edited intentionally. Like Yeah, that's a lot of editing. This has a lot of long shots as well too. Right. I don't know. And to the movie's benefit, I mean, you can the set of this movie. I mean, I would almost believe that they built an entire restaurant for this thing. The kitchen is huge, yeah. with long pan shots across the whole thing. There's a, a huge, enormous depth of field to the whole scene, um, uh, to the whole set of the kitchen, um, the dining room. It was just very ornate. Um, it, it was almost, you know, I, one of my notes was it, it's every shot is a painting. Yeah. In this movie, and, and it, it, intentionally so because all around the dining room are these huge like Rembrandt paintings, right. and it, it's so incredibly detailed. There's such uh, there's so much detail in the background going on in a lot of the scenes in the restaurant. Um, yeah, I I think that's one of the things I liked is like as the camera moved throughout the kitchen it didn't feel like anybody who was it felt like a play because like all of those people were 
acting, quote unquote, independently of them knowing they were being filmed. So it's just like, hey, you're going to not wear a shirt, have a really long ponytail and beard, and you're just going to stir this. Stir this pot, baby. And then when we say cut, that's when you can stop stirring. And so this guy was stirring. He might have been in the, like, if we got the, like, the, you know, the pan shot, if we got Mm -hmm. the, like, the letterbox version... Yeah. Of the like, he might still be in the shot. I don't know yeah. how long he was in there. I you said this movie's like a play. Like the movie opens on curtains, <laughs> literally. Curtains <laughs> open to the scene in the alley where Spiga is, you know, pissing on this guy. Um, yeah, I mean it. It is very much shot like a stage production, and uh, you know, much to its benefit, it's just so. I, I really can't say enough about the, the set design and the costume and the color and you know the, the quality of the food in contrast to the subject matter it is such a visually beautiful and yeah. gorgeous movie a lot of it is um, with one of I mean Spick is one of the most despicable characters I've ever seen in a movie and he gets a lot of screen time yeah. A lot of lines. I mean, there's so much of the movie is him just uh, speaking extemporaneously about, you know, the food and geopolitics and, you know, how he's the master of both. And all of the other right. is awful. Yeah. Uh, you know, criminals are bad to him. Uh, everyone is bad except him. Right. You know, he's so disgusting. But the movie itself is so beautiful <laughs> until we get to the meat truck. Like, I, I, I actually retched yeah, it's, during that scene. It's a physical... I gagged. Just like I I think was, it's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in a movie. Just like when, uh, in Punch Drunk Love, when, like, his sister is in his office and, uh, is it Lena? Yeah. Is in the office and he's, like, trying to, like, get out of the it's, situation. It's exploding. I'm like, exploding. like, I... I didn't know if there was a, like, tinnitus in the movie or I was catching it. Like, but then, <laughs> like, when they were in the, like, the meat trucks that had been there for, oh. a f- like, two days, you're just like, I guess I'm going to throw up. Like, yeah, just it was, ro- two nude people yeah. standing in this. In such a physical. Hundreds of pounds of rotten meat. Yeah, the way they could evoke that. Oh, my God. And it's not the same as, like, anything in jackass or, or fear factor no. like now you have to eat like 15 you know pig dicks and you're like all right here we go joe I'm rogan do it <laughs> but like this was a different kind of even though it was like oh it's gross out it wasn't played for anything but like well they're they're going to get murdered this is the depth of humanity they have to get in there right and then they get hosed off I later mean, it's and you're just so, like, so gross. purely Grotesque. It, yes. I mean, it is. It is the the art of the grotesque. Yeah. They nailed it in that scene. So gross, and yeah. And then they get hosed off, which mirrors the scene from the beginning of the movie where the right. guy who gets the dog shit and pissed on. Yes. Similarly, gets hosed off by yeah. the cook and and his his crew. It's and it's sort of like so. This is sort. Of, you're like, oh, is this supposed to be Adam and Eve now? Now they're wearing clothes. Right. Or, but then they're yeah, like I got that feeling of him in the books. library it doesn't make right. any sense but it's, then he dies in a Christ pose yeah but because he ate so many they shoved 
pages in his books. Too much knowledge? I don't know. I don't know. And then they're like, no, it's because he's the intellectual and they're ineffectual. And I'm just like, "Uh, I didn't get that. Yeah, maybe. Anyway. Yeah, I I wrote that, you know, I wrote, uh, I think that was um, Scott Tobias's, uh, you know, his line about the allegory. But Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert also wrote a similar thing and he was similarly dubious. Mm Um, but yeah, you know, uh, lab, you know, the cook is labor, the thief is Thatcher, the wife is the mother country, and the lover is the intellectuals. But then Scott Tobias says, and, and this he wrote this article, and I want to say 2012. Um, okay. I'd have to look that up again, but you know, it was a little while ago. Um, but he says um, the, this allegory could probably be broadly applied to many tyrannical administrations, at least in those democracies that occasionally elect. A power-hungry boar into high office, and I thought, well, I guess the thief could be Donald Trump, yeah. and the owner is, you know, the 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 libs, yeah. you know, the the, the Democrat libs who just get owned for four years by Trump. It's yeah. Like, well, yeah, I guess that that does work. It's that's it the thing is like I, I think, think that's any. Uh, I I think if you're going to make the political connection, I think it has to represent a an elected person, like a Trump or a Bolsonaro or a Maduro or, uh, yeah. you know, a, a, any of these kind of awful right-wing figures. And that's the, I think, the good thing about this movie that it speaks more to, it's not generational, it's sort of like, it, because it's so over-the-top and, like, intentionally dramatic and florid, it's like, oh, yeah, that's definitely Thatcher because of this. It's like, no, this is, like, Renaissance-era like yeah. you, said, you said like it's or not renaissance it's like baroque like the paintings and the colors and like the the this guy's this castrata is singing mm-hmm. and this like mm-hmm. gregorian like all of it speaks to something that's older and just keeps happening and i right. I, that makes more sense to me that that was intentional rather than a, an a to b allegory cuz allegories yeah, exactly are not supposed to... You're supposed to get it. It's supposed to slap you in the face a little bit. Right. Because, like, his name would be, like... uh, What's the male form of Margaret? Mark? Okay. Mark? Yeah. Yeah, it'd just be, like... It, it wouldn't be Albert. And then, like, all, the names would, would give hints right. and all this stuff. And, like, you know, the pop... Like you said, oh, he's he dies in a Christ pose. It's like, that's because it's the, allegorical. The, the, Christ? The... the, the, the <laughs> We get it. Right. It's supposed to be gotten easily. Right. And I don't know what most is. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. When they're having sex in the bathroom, I'm like, is this supposed to be an allegory? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, right, and it's like the romance. I don't. I, I didn't get specific allegorical right. uh, aspects out of their romance. Now, that said, I think their romance. I don't want to say it felt true to life. I don't think much about this movie felt true to life. It's very heightened. It's, yeah. It's very artificial. Yes. But it is very... Uh, it's very raw and passionate. It does portray an aspect of love very true to life. Right. That's very vulnerable. And, and uh, you, you, yeah, there, there's a sweetness to it. I mean, you know, they don't even talk to each other for the first... They don't know each other's names. Yeah, they don't uh, speak. At least two times they meet up. Yeah. 
Alright, um, what other things do you want to say about this movie specifically before we move into our categories? Yeah, I, I just want to give a shout out to Michael Gambon as Spica. Um, just, he's, he's incredible. Uh, Eldest Dumbledore. He's, a, we'll he's shout, been in shout him out there. dozens of things. Yeah, and him, I mean, him That's and Mirren, the two of them are two of, you know, they, they've played every principal character in any Shakespeare <laughs> Adaptation. Yeah. I mean, the Royal Shakespeare Company. There's a couple of the great all-time English actors, um, but he gets an opportunity when um, uh, I think it's when he finds out uh, about the affair, his meltdown at the restaurant. I, I mean, it's one of the all-time great meltdowns. He fucking destroys that set, throwing food and furniture all over the place, one shot. kicking the shit out of people. Yeah. One shot. You know, ten minutes long. Yeah. It's incredible. What it, we just yeah, all time great. It seems like they told him and everybody they're like on they're just like he's gonna go. He, just let let yourself go. Yeah, Albert. he's going full beast mode. And like this scene. and people are kind of confused and like don't react in a like in an actor way. Like there are mm. no stunt people. They're just like oh and like they fall down <laughs> yeah, or trip right. or something or like. Things come out of their hands in an unnatural way because it's a natural scene. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, they're just a. There, there are a lot of little things I noticed in the film, like uh, when when Spica and his gang go to the um, the bookstore or book repository, and just just funny how all the hunchmen were reading, and Spica wasn't. It's yeah. like yeah, they're they're not. Right. Totally with you. For you, the you first just, time. You just pay them. This is the first time they got yeah. to read. And yeah. Like, oh, this is like good. That. You know, I had a thought that, like, you know, it. it I think it, um, the, movie, the movie almost makes a point of comparing, I think the food itself is a form of eroticism. And especially, like, the, the preparation of the food is, like, the foreplay mm-hmm. to, um... I'll just say the, the wife and her lover. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think a lot of films and a lot of art, you know, it's not an original idea comparing food to sex, eating to sex, but the, this movie makes a very clear connection between those ideas, and I think does it really well. Yeah, and just it's so sumptuous too. Like I, I just I really cannot get over how incredible this movie looks. Yeah, it's a like. The absolute Sens- masterpiece. Sensory overload. Yeah. And it's all very well thought out. Like, mm-hmm. everything is... He knows what it's going to look like... Yes. In 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 the shot. And every... Like, there are details yeah, that just don't the compositions. Yeah, the, the designs. Yeah. yeah it, just an absolute masterclass of visual filmmaking. Yeah. Um, so, we, we liked both of these movies, but we'll be back... Right. Uh, after a break to tell you with a set of criteria which one of these movies uh, is a better member of the new cult canon. Alright, we're back. Uh, We've got four criteria to decide which one of these movies the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, or Punch Drunk Love, which one of them belongs more in the new cult canon um which there's like 50 movies 
There's a whole bunch. 50, 70, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So we're not arguing that are these good movies or did we like them? That's not what this point is. We, we like... Did oh, you like them? I mean, the list of movies is almost exclusively good movies. I I, yeah, I really liked both of these I movies. I like both of these movies and I'm ready to start our very first one, which we always do, is rewatchability for movies. Bob, which one of these do... Do you want to rewatch? One is two hours long. One is ninety minutes long, but both of them feel like the same amount of time. <laughs> and that's both a criticism and a compliment to, like, the movie. And I was exhausted at the end of both movies. Yeah. <laughs> because they both have. I want to use the word visceral. And then I want to also have the word catharsis in there. Yes. There's a lot of, like, psychology words. There's a lot of literary terms thrown about for both of these movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's hyperbole to use either when you're talking about these. Uh, do you want to go first? I will go first, gladly. Uh, rewatchability, I have to give it to Punk Drunk Love. Um, it's First of all, it's... It's just a funny movie. It's a good Sandler performance. Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it for five minutes. Oh my god! And he actor of the year absolutely one thousand percent crushes every single second. Every line that he says yeah. is incredible. And I, 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 honestly, it's one of my favorite performances uh, that so that good. he does in his career. He's it's so good. So good. Um, and you know just. I, you know, out of personal sensibility, *The Cook, the Thief*. Uh, it's it's a great movie. Um, I think there's a lot of beauty to it, but it is such a foul movie at the same time. And that aspect just isn't there in *Punch Drunk Love*. *Punch Drunk Love* is just an easier watch, quite simply. Um, and I do expect that I'll watch it um, a few more times. Whereas the Cook the Thief, it's it's such high art that it's it's exhausting to watch uh, at times. And I just I don't know if I'm gonna watch that more than, you know, maybe a couple more times in my life. And I yeah, so I'm gonna go out I, I don't want to watch either of these again. And it's not because they were bad, it's because you you nailed it. You it is taxing mm-hmm. on the viewer, on the audience. If you're going to, I don't want to say the word appreciate, if you're going to watch with you a careful eye. intently watch it, yeah. And I think that um, I want to say because it's a 90-minute dramedy that like it's easier to watch Punch Drunk Love, but I think there's still a level of if you can if you are watching it fully, there is so much happening that it's it wipes you out. And I think yeah, I, the world inside Barry's mind is, it is exhausting. exhausting. And that's why, I, like, my anxiety was so. <laughs> it is because I think because I have related to Barry because I always knock out. You know, I always throw a hammer through stuff. Yeah. Um, but like, no, it's just that like. Uh, you are in close quarters. You are constantly emotionally vulnerable. 
uh, people don't understand you, people are talking over you, they don't listen to you, you don't feel like... Like, that stuff felt too real that I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want to watch this in a movie. <laughs> it's like... Right, yeah. But where, like, the high art part, it, I was a... I could only be a participant as a viewer. I was. Yeah, I would never yeah. be a participant that, as an actor. Th- that's a great way to put it. Yeah, the Cook the Thief. It's very intense as an observer. Yeah. Whereas you can really identify <laughs> deeply with Punch Drunk Love. Not that I've gone to Hawaii to chase someone with. Um, frequent flyer oh no he doesn't have those yet yeah it takes six to eight weeks which i guess is why it's such a romantic gesture (laughs) um but i the reason i'm choosing to rewatch the cook uh the thief um is because it is um i haven't seen an opera but i've seen a handful like the the handful of like plays i've seen that are like they're they're with they're using like platonic um you know forms or they're mm-hmm. using archetypes it's like yeah. i pre- i can appreciate that because it's heightened it's very big and it's it's i don't feel as bad because it's like i can be removed from it because it's talking in absolutes right where like like Barry Egan i'm like uh i guess i'm just like one <laughs> like huge mistake away from being a guy that sells novelty plungers <laughs> and like if a heart if i see a car flip over and a van pulls up i'm gonna freak out just like he did yeah remember when he like he he took like seven quick sips yeah. from his coffee and then he just sprinted to go get the harmonium i'm like i think i've done that <laughs> like but it's so true i mean uh, as uh, as nasty as uh, the cook, the thief can be. Mm-hmm. The shots yeah. of the movie are so spacious, and there is a sense of detachment from what's going on right. in a lot of ways. You, right. you really do. You have the opportunity almost explicitly feel like an observer. You have the opportunity to not watch the awful things that are happening when Spick is doing stuff. You can literally well, true. watch Tim there Roth. There is so much like, going on. Suck his thumb or scene. something weird. Like, every right. character is doing something on purpose for you to catch. And like we said earlier with Punch Drunk Love, there are moments, you know, maybe some extended moments in the movie where there is nothing else to look at but Barry's face. Even when the As he's dealing with his emotions. When, like you mentioned the forklift scene, like, that's not the whole, that's not the point. He's, he's like confirming a, he's getting a date with someone who says he likes him right and that's why he's just like oh it happens all the time don't worry about it. like no and how and that's so funny like on the surface yeah this pretty woman comes into where you work and she wants to go out with you but that can be so not that that explicitly has happened to me right. but that can be so stressful <laughs> having a person that you are into right. or you think you're into right. and that other person is into you and you know they're into you and you know that they want to do something more right. and elevate this relationship and you don't know if you can handle it. Which is, and as the viewer, you empathize with that feeling from Barry so much. Which is the exact opposite 
of what happens in The Cook and the Thief is where, like, they make eye contact and then start an illicit, very sensuous affair. <laughs> you're like, this doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> why? Like, that's something that Barry Egan would watch and, like, he would know that would never... Like, that's something he would fantasize about. But when, a, like, right. an adult... right consenting adult comes in and says I saw a picture of you and I want to date you and he's just like uh, uh, uh nope forklift. <laughs> yeah, he just loses his mind he loses his mind um but that's the thing is like I Punch Drunk Love was good I just so the first uh episode of this podcast we listened to um The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails and then Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion Ooh, and it's just like album of the summer it's for just the like you're running it's not that i don't want to re-listen to nine inch nails because that's an incredible album it's yes. just like i can't do it on yeah. a car ride somewhere no. i can't no. listen to that on the way to grandma's <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i yeah i'll put on emotion on literally any car drive i take <laughs> but yeah downward spiral is like i'm gonna listen to that once every few years i mean at least it's truth in advertising Hopefully. it's not just like oh yeah this, <laughs> sure this is uplifting no stupid yeah look at the cover <laughs> uh so that's just that it's not a criticism of the quality it's just no it's, if anything not. it's an acknowledgement of the of the content of the ex- expertise you of know, the craft they know what they're doing right um all right so we talked about cult movies at the beginning and like what consists of them and so our next three uh criteria try to work their way towards that so like which movie do you think was more outside the mainstream and then we sort of like uh for shorthand we talked about like which one doesn't follow the rules in a more um cult movie fashion mm-hmm. you want to give this one off mike I, i'm gonna give it to punch drunk love because um the phrase morality play has been bouncing around my head to describe the cook the thief because yes. There is such a sense of inevitability, and there is such a sense of, um, comp- like, we talked about poetic justice earlier, where, like, uh, there is going to be consequences for screwing around when you are the, like, when, when you are owned by a crime lord who's insane and disgusting... <laughs> yes and he finds out you're having sex with someone that's not him, he's going to lose his mind, and you are going to get punished. Especially some fucking nerd. This guy reads books? He's yeah. going down. He reads books at dinner. And, um, and because of the movie, you know that the bad guy is also going to get his comeuppance. Yeah, So, absolutely. like, it, it hit all those things. It was like, of course, it didn't follow most rules, uh, specifically the MPAA rules, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to see I got to see the One Rings like uncircumcised dick like three or four times, and oh, yeah. it you takes, gotta see some full bush. It takes some guts to just be like half mass on like just this is an art movie, so we're gonna see some flaccid ding dong. Yes, and we saw a lot of it. And is that what makes it X? Because like I think ding dong Cobra the X. Cobra rating. killed like. 50,000 he killed 50,000 men and that movie was rated R he murdered the city of Jackson I watched him kill everybody (laughs) they're like rated R it's fine Uh, but anyway so like I think that that followed like 
and the, that's one of the things that leaned into it's like we're not we're not recreating anything we're just making everything we're turning everything up a notch it's like you're never going to see this in an opera but this is the premise and we're just going to make it more visceral because it's 1989 mm-hmm. um, where Punch Drunk Love was not typical in any capacity it didn't start normal it none of the events made sense Everything that I thought was going to happen, like I went, I thought the date would have been when they stopped seeing each other. Um, right. Uh, the only thing that made sense was, I guess, like the the subplot uh-huh, of the harmonium being like his. I want to say his heart or some some dumb shit like that. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, he finds it's it is broken. Like that. Right. He finds it. He repairs so it. Some he he tests it, and then by the end, he's playing it. Like right. that's that's all I've got for the only thing that I thought that followed a rule, and it was like a visual analogy for something that is um, unspoken or unseen. Yeah, that's all I got. So that's why I thought it followed less of the rules. I think I'm. Uh, this one was really close for me. I think I'm gonna have to give it to Cook and the Thief. Um, now I agree with a, a lot of what you said about Punch Drunk Love. Um, and there's, you know, everything you said, uh, plus, you know, just some of the filmic elements are unconventional. You know, we talked about the score. Um, a lot of unconventional aspects of it. Um, but the cook, the thief, the wife, uh, his wife and her lover ends with cannibalism. Who saw that coming? <laughs> they, yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, the lover is murdered, and the lover, or, or I, sorry, the wife, yeah. decides to cook him entirely and feed him to the thief. Which as is, comeuppance. there's like a six or seven minute um, dialogue between the cook and the wife yes. about cooking of the lover, mm-hmm. and it is confusing and it seems ethereal and yeah. then and then it literally just switches on a dime and then every and then as the audience member you're rubbing your hands together you're like hells yeah uh-huh. like and that's when the jacobian like that's when the poetic justice comes up and this right and then the thief who's been talking all this shit and just like doing all this ignorant stuff all of a sudden finally we see the like the first like taboo that he's ever seen the the yeah. only unspeakable thing he has to do yeah yeah right right it opens up with him rubbing dog shit and pissing on someone but this is the unspeakable yeah, this is line. what blows him away right um but you know there's a lot of filmic elements that broke the rules about uh, punch drunk but that's also true with the cook the thief now i do think some of the film conventions that the cook the thief broke were um uh you know callbacks to uh theater Mm -hmm. so they are kind of classic in that regard but the way that they incorporated it into the film um the you know like we said the film literally opens on curtains being drawn open um the way the camera moves through through the sets and shows the sets and the costume changes and the um, I'll call it semi-allegorical 
aspects mm-hmm. of the film. I think there are a lot of things that you can connect uh, to, you know, uh, say allegory. There are things that you can't. Um, just the the nastiness of yeah. Spica himself. Definitely earned uh, that X rating. Gang. I mean, it's uh, really just can't say how foul of a creature he was um, uh, you know, especially as compared to the sumptuousness of the food and the costume and the lighting and the paintings and, and the, 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 the the shot compositions um, it, it I, I don't know how many rules it breaks but I feel like it pushes the boundaries it, it, it's like it. the, the filmmaker you know the filmmaker's in like a rubber ball and he, he's pushing against right. the walls and you right. can see his fingers pressing out against but it never quite snaps until the end when you see a full glazed cooked human corpse that Spica <laughs> has to fillet and eat a bite of before he eats a bullet yeah and then and then she, the the Curtains close on her. Helen Mirren just being disgusted and saying "cannibal." Got him! Got him! Nailed him! I'll show you, you piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was awesome. Um, Okay, so our next one. Let's talk about which movie was because. So, uh, when Bob and I were talking about this, we we saw both Bad Santa and Army of Darkness next to like. The Fall, which is like a, com- a movie told completely in dreams. So it's like, uh, we wanted to talk about which one was more artistic. Um, because a lot of cult movies, while, like, while they will look like pulp or schlock, like, also, ele- like, it's not, they're not cheap, they're creative. And right. then sometimes they are, like, both of these, incredibly well budgeted. Like, and they're, typically made by very talented filmmakers. If, not, um, if nothing... A, a, another example yeah. on the list is Starship Troopers. Right. You know, Paul Verhoeven is yeah. a an absolute king you of can use the word filmmaking. You can say auteur on yeah. this podcast. I'll say auteur. Uh, auteur Paul Verhoeven. Um, yeah, I mean, God. Yeah. What, Robocop, Total Recall, uh, Starship Troopers. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the guy has, has his bona fides. This is not his first rodeo, for sure. Um, and I think that's something to say about both of these movies. This was not... We already talked about um, Paul Thomas Anderson. This is not his most artistic movie. It's not even his highest budget. Like, he didn't have a like a, a hurricane oh. of frogs. Um, but I do want to read to you what, uh, like, the next movie that Greenaway did. It was called... Prospero's Books. This is from the Scott Tobias AV Club review. Uh, It's a 1991 adaptation of The Tempest. It was so choked with cinematic techniques and gimmicks, animation, mime, opera, and a dense assortment of frames within frames he called paint box images that moviegoers were given pamphlets to help them process the visual overload. And that, in a nutshell, is the primary frustration with Greenaway, whose work can sometimes seem purposefully obstructionist rather than merely ambitious. And I think that that is fair. 
But yes. also, why wouldn't you try using mime and opera in a movie if you could? If you like, feel like you can handle it. It's like, I'm not going to see that in Thor Love and Thunder, okay? But you know what I did see in Speak for yourself. Thor 3 is Taika Waititi doing, like, nonsense jokes. Yeah. And nobody saw that shit coming, and it's just because they're like, uh, we. this is the third Thor movie. It's the 18th, like, Avengers movie. We've got the word Thor on it. It's going to make $80 million. So why don't you just... Think add a zero to that. <laughs> let's just do something stupid. Yeah. And so... They're just like, we'll just give it to this, I don't know, is he from Australia? No, I'm from New Zealand. And they're like, we don't care. And he uh, just cracked it out of the park. And that's what happens sometimes when you give smart people who are willing to be creative a bunch of money. And I think that's like, I didn't see Prospero's books. I'm sure I wouldn't get it. Uh, But like, that doesn't mean you can't like it and that's the thing with um there's a lot of people who again i'm going to bring up opera for a third time even though i haven't been to an opera it's like there are people who argue you shouldn't have the uh super titles which is like they project what they're saying in italian or german in english like so you can follow the story there there are people who argue you shouldn't do that because that's not why you're seeing the opera you're seeing it to like see the costumes and the st- the stage and listen to the music. Feel the emotion. And and that's where it's like, sometimes that's the point. It's like, you either get the art and the story, or you just get one of them. And it one should be good enough to get the other because this, you can't match a story to art sometimes. It's just like, that's why so many times, like a really good action movie has a dumb plot because you just right. need to see Tony Jaa crack a bunch of skulls with his knees. Yeah. You're like, what's the plot? Um, He's looking for his elephants. Yeah. His elephant went missing. You're like, that's the plot of the movie? You're like, and it's an hour and 40 minutes? You're like, yeah. well, we were going to make it shorter, but at one point he runs up a glass wall and then an ATV goes under him and cracks the glass. And you said... Because of the elephants? You're like, yep. <laughs> you just need a thread line to make yeah. the the weird shit, the artistic stuff happen. Right. And I think that uh, I got to give it to the cook. No, I don't know. I'm going to give it to the cook. But <laughs> See, it's close. But that's close, thing is right? like Because they literally mention in one of the, the trivia from IMDb, Paul Thomas Anderson was doing the, the phone sex scene with Adam Sandler and mm-hmm. he accidentally hit something and it like created a effect that he's just like oh hells yeah I'm gonna do this on purpose now <laughs> and that sh- kept showing up and like the whole thing with like there would be a it wouldn't be a transition he would just cut to weird music and right. bizarre colors on screen and you're right. like is the movie over? <laughs> <laughs> Is it now? Is this an intermission? Is it now a dream? Right. No. He, like the first scene, I'm just like, oh, this is this. He's gonna wake up. Right. No. And that's why. You're right. It's a tough call, but I have to go. I have to go with the one where it's just like, we're gonna have opera. We're gonna have a. Pl- we're, it's just gonna be, oh, uncut, 
And that's the thing is, like, I appreciate about both of these is, like, they know how to... The filmography and the director of photography, were, they were not messing around. They were trying weird, no, like, serious ab- swings. Absolute, just, yeah, uh, top of their class. Right. And that that's why this decision was very hard for me, because, you know, artistry, especially in film... Um, it's a visual medium you think of the visuals and you know I'll, I'll say it I'll try to say it for the last time I really I'll be thinking about the cook the thief the wife and her lover for the rest of my life just the visuals in that movie mm-hmm. so perfect down to every detail and it, it's not just it's not just Helen Mirren it's not just Michael Gambon it's every actor in the movie every piece of costume it's every piece of set every color used um but I think I'm gonna have to give it to Punch Drunk Love um because I think it also the movie also does a very fine job with set design um I mentioned uh Barry's apartment earlier it just it it hit I mean it hit me like a ton like yeah, that was my now right. Adam Sandler is what thirty something in this movie, yeah. but um, hit me like yeah when I was just living by myself yep. in my twenties. Like yeah, it's lonely to live by yourself, and I imagine it's much lonelier if you're living by yourself for like fifteen years yeah. or something. And everyone you're related to, you hate. Yeah, <laughs> right. Totally make- alienated from your family. The family is the cause of the trauma and stress in your life. Um, but it's not just the visuals, the music was just really special in this movie. Um, we mentioned the kind of interstitial uh, abstract art shots. <laughs> the, I'm just, sure... Just like, the moving colors in yeah, space. There's a phrase for it, but I don't I don't know it because they... It, like, like you said, it's what they would use in the 70s to... like transition between like a trailer and a movie right or like intermission like you put that well right like i don't know what's going on now and i think that acting overall was a was on a slightly higher level mm-hmm. with punch drunk love mm-hmm. um michael gambon unleashed king shit yeah in cook the thief helen mirren's great as she always is um but adam sandler for the first time in his career, unveiled a new, yeah. you know, uh, uncovered a new leaf in his acting uh, capabilities, which he then showed off to great effect later in his career, especially with uh, Uncut Gems. Right. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Nailed it again. Five, six, seven minutes in the movie. Everything is absolutely perfect. <laughs> um, uh, who will. Uh, uh, who who was the main actor in it? Uh, actress. Her name. Is it, uh, em- uh, Emma? Em- Emily Watson. Em- Emily Watson. That's right. I want to say Emma Watson. That's all right. Emily Watson. Um, she was really great. Um, so uh, I just think that Punchdrunk Club was just a a hair above. So I got to give it to that. A lot of good cult movies are that they. Uh, because they're telling a weird 
unconventional story that um, it's not a typical revenge story or it's not a typical rom-com exactly it's not a typical horror movie like when we watch Clowntergeist right. or Gotti neither of them had anything but direct interpretation available right um, a lot of cult movies develop plot holes that turn into fan theories and so we have deemed this um, depth of appreciation but I want to bring up so we already like we, we didn't even try to beat to death but the internet did it for us like the oh the cook the thief is wife and her lover is an allegory and you're like right. no that's one way to interpret it right and then you already provided an immediate separate interpretation from um uh the thatcher one uh are you familiar with the fan theory about punch drunk love what is the fan theory of punch drunk love let me read to you uh from reddit i'll be brief uh <laughs> okay that's how it starts um as a fan, uh, this is a story about Superman. He, uh, Barry always wears a blue suit and a red tie. His girlfriend is Lena Leonard, or LL like Lois Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman can fly. <laughs> and at one point, uh, Barry literally leaps off of a platform and tries to fly, falls onto concrete, gets up, and then, um, because he has a million freaking flyer miles, he can fly whenever he wants. Also, like, yeah, he gets he he kills those guys. <laughs> Remember? He wastes the four blonde brothers. Um. So, I thought that like the whole point that that could exist at all, because there's so much, there's so much. Abs- it's. It's not even absurd. It's just so much un... Even though it is super realistic, it's so unnatural yeah. at times. And there... So this uh, just kind of popped into my mind as you're reading this Superman punch drunk love theory, which, you know, I'm all for it. Love fan theories. Love, uh, you know, weird textual interpretations. Reminds me of another fun interpretation I heard of. Another uh, member of the new cult canon, the Blair Witch Project. Ooh. There is a, uh, I, I guess I'll call it a fan theory, that the movie is a, uh, not a literal, but the movie is a snuff film. That the two men, uh, Josh and, uh, I forget the other guy's name, kill Heather. Oh. That's what the movie's about. Ooh. Um, and there, there, there's a lot of stuff there that's like, yeah, oh, yeah. maybe. Maybe they set this thing up and they kill Heather. I don't necessarily believe that. That is what happens in the movie. But that speaks to the depth of appreciation because that there is this open. space there yeah. in the movie that it isn't so literal that uh, it, it just is what it is. And that's the thing, again, with like the, the portrayals by so many of the actors, like so much of that could be left open because it's so like you know what's happening and what the actors are feeling and their motivations in The Cook and the Thief but like so much of Punch Drunk Love is like open to interpretation so let me read you one shitty fan theory 
uh, about The Shining, all of the film's supernatural elements are imagined by the characters. That's not a fan theory. That's just... That's the that's, premise. Right. <laughs> so, I just want to point out that just because it's a fan theory doesn't mean... Like, The Shining is not a cult movie. It is right. just a... It is a part of the it's, it's canon. It's a horror. Yeah, yeah it is because, the canon. And, like, when someone... So, if you're familiar with, like, there's the there's a whole, like, Netflix uh, documentary about, like, fan theories about... Room 287? Yeah. Is that what it's called? 237? 237, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh, really good movie. But, like, it, it just shows you that, like... You can read a lot into it, and mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't work because, like, there, that movie has wide swaths of silence, so you can interpret a lot. And right. It has so much happening in a scene, so you can interpret a lot. And some of those theories are too specific. And they don't make sense. But, and like, make sense. a lot can make sense when, like, you have big gaps in a narrative. Right. Like, with Army of Darkness, like, stuff happens, and you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Or, like, something... Ha- like, w- you even have a fan theory that, like, that's when reality ends, and then the rest is a dream. Like, mm-hmm. if that can... Like, you can re-watch the movie and be like, that still makes sense. Right. And I think that's why I'm giving it to Punch Drug Love. Depth of Appreciation. Um, yeah, I... I agree. A uh, lot of good points. I'm gonna have to cast the tiebreaker vote. Um, give it to Punch Drunk Love. Um, that uh, that depth of appreciation. Plus, I feel like it. I did give it my vote for rewatchability, not just because of the ease of the rewatch, but I do think there's a lot there that can add to that depth of rewatchability. And like with any cult film, I think these movies are meant to watch with a group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least to some extent, um, they, 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 they'd be more enjoyable to watch with a group of people. Um, I mentioned as an aside earlier that um, among a group of friends and I, one of my favorite—it's not exactly a cult movie, but it kind of fits this working definition. The the uh, the I think it's nineteen ninety nine, Brendan Fraser, the Mummy film. Uh, you know, in college, I watched it with my roommates. Like, you know, it's like fifty times in a year. <laughs> Um, and we would just pick up on these these weird little lines between characters that you know the to- a total aside that no one you go to the theater and you watch it just totally wash over your heads just you know some aside thing but these little lines that stick out like no the, these men are a desert people they value water not gold <laughs> it's like what why, would, why do you know that what's that mean that's great um but, you know, it, 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 I think Punch-Up Glove is a kind of type of movie that, you know, you watch over and over again with your friends. And, um, again, the phone argument scene between Sandler, the Sandman, and PHS. Yeah. That's the type of scene that, you know, two people watch this movie a few times. You quote that scene back and forth to each other a bunch of times. What is your name? <laughs> I'm Barry... How do I know that, man? You could be any asshole. Are you threatening me, dick? I think at one point there was also like a scene that they cut where there's a like commercial that lets... Have you seen the commercial? No. Because like the commercial's cut, right? It's incredible. 
But the commercials... I don't know if it was how... cut or filmed just as a total aside. Okay, because, like, that's how Barry finds out who to call. Because okay. in the movie, he do... there's no linear way for him to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. So I'll... I'll... <laughs> highly recommend watching this commercial. You can YouTube. It's, uh... uh shoot, I forget Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's name in the movie. But, uh, you know, it's, it's his commercial for yeah. the mattress. He's the mattress man. He's getting his hair cut. And the commercial opens up. He's standing on the roof... <laughs> of the mattress store playing silently a guitar the, the guitar is not mic'd so he's just strumming <laughs> along and he looks up and he's like hey I'm the mattress man come on down we got uh, you know sets of queens for 99 and sets of kings for 129 and he has a guitar in his hand then there's a car in the parking lot with like seven mattresses piled on top of it and he jumps off, like, onto his back, onto the pile of mattresses, and then immediately bounces off and falls face down, probably eight feet onto the asphalt. Oh, no. And I don't know if it was the set, the film crew that runs into the frame to see if he's okay, or if those are characters that run in. They're like, you okay, man? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm all right, man. They're like... Damn, dude, that was like a seven-foot drop. <laughs> it's like, oh, did you get that on film, man? Yeah, we got it. All right, cool. <laughs> but that's the type of thing. Like, if that was in the movie, that would be a, I mean, fucking defining, like, cult movie type of scene. But I think because it's not in the movie, it even solidifies it more. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so if you're keeping track at home, uh, it's a close race. We're giving it to Punch Drunk Love. As our winner today, definitely see the cook, uh, the thief, his wife, and her lover. But oh yeah, it, be in the mood to it's, be. Yeah. It's a disgusted. Day. It's a day. Like you need to break it up. But to be moved. Treat it like the Irishman, but instead of being bored, you're going to be disgusted. Like you know, like yeah. take take yeah. you know tr- treat his chapters. Take a break. Take a break. <laughs> you know what's going to happen because once you start it, you can figure it out. But, oh yeah. Uh, we'll be back in a minute with uh, a segment and some recommendations for other cult movies that now belong to the new cult team. Alright, we're back. Uh, it's time for recommendations. Um, it is truly difficult to just pick one and not spend like 40 minutes talking about all of them. We, we talked about a couple new cult classics. Um... I think, like, the fact that this list exists, just check it out. It'll be in the show notes. Um, I appreciate so many of them. Bob and I said, what do you think, 75%? We've seen 75%. About 75%, yeah. Uh, there's some on there that I've never seen, some that I don't know if I want to see. Yeah. Uh, like, casually, but, like, do you want to start off with your favorite that you want to recommend? Yeah. Um, and this actually... It's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I'm going to recommend The Descent. Um, I believe it's 2006? That sounds right. I saw it in theaters, so that um, sounds right. Oh, wow. I did not see it in theaters. I saw it maybe a year or two after it came out, um, but I was on a real big uh, horror movie binge yes. with some friends, and none of us had seen it. We threw it on. Um I'll give a, a, a simple plot breakdown. Um, a woman and her uh, group of all women friends um, go on a, maybe not a camping trip, but a spelunking trip. 
Um, they, you know, they're, they're a bunch of ex- adventurers. They like the outdoors and stuff. And they go into a, a cave, and disaster happens. <laughs> and it is easily, I, I mean, maybe top five scariest experiences so I've scary. ever had watching a movie. It's so scary. It's the, the setting of the cave and the, um, I'll just say, maybe not supernatural, extra natural beings. Fucking mortifying. And I don't, I, I need to bring up the fact that, like, this is not The Hills Have Eyes. It's, it's nowhere, nope. it's sort of like, like, H.P. Lovecraft-esque. Like, H.P. Lovecraft, when he was, like, 19, wrote... Effectively wrote something very similar to this, like the premise of this, uh, and this movie nails it on like every on every anything that it can hit. Right, it does really like yeah. Again, right, visually stunning for Ooh. a movie that's shot in a cave. Right, like, <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, the amount of darkness that's in the movie, and, and literally the amount of night vision they mm-hmm. use. Yeah, I mean, it looks great. Um, Features a bone torch. You know. Great band name, Bone Torch. <laughs> to throw that one out there. Um, Have it for free. <laughs> but yeah, D- The Descent, 2005. Um, really yeah, close to just uh, incredible. Um, uh, Mike, what about you? I'm going to recommend um, the original Old Boy, which is a uh, <laughs> South Korean movie. It's a, so I believe the director. That's unfortunate you had to say original. Uh, I have not seen the re- the American I remake. I seen it. I like uh, that the guy Brolin. Yeah, James Brolin. James Brolin plays old boy. Um, so I don't think Josh Brolin. What I say, James. That's his dad. I think that, I think married, he is an actor. He's married to <laughs> uh, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> um, so the premise of old boy. Uh, so it's Park Chan Wook. Is that how you say it? Uh, is the director he does a vengeance trilogy um this is the only one i've seen of that yeah likewise it is it, it, i i don't want to give too much away so like it is absurd in the fact that like it this guy so much of the movie takes place of him being like imprisoned and he doesn't know why and then there's like flashbacks that give you some hints and then um when he gets out because one day he's just this is in the trailer so I'm not ruining anything like he's kidnapped one day put in a room that he has to live in for 30% of the movie then he gets out one day one day he just wakes up they, they gas him and he just wakes up outside and he just starts on a war path and f- then it's revenge and then <laughs> there's more st- and then there's like 50 other layers to that and it's like while Punch Drunk Love left a lot of like interpretation there. Like this movie is so meticulously planned out that you need to rewatch it. Even while you're watching it, you're thinking like it doesn't try to it doesn't give any any hints away. It doesn't do any flashbacks to previous parts of the movie. It does flashbacks to stuff you've never seen or you never understood and then you're watching a flashback that you don't understand until like 20 minutes later. And it sounds exhausting, but it's so captivating, and it's so brutal, and it's one of the... It's also an action movie. This mm-hmm. is where the famous um, hallway scene with a hammer... <laughs> and, and yes. like, 
I don't even want to talk about the ending because it's not worth talking about to convince you to see it. But this movie is insane. And at one point, the the actor who is an, a practicing Buddhist has to eat a live squid. And he had to, like, religiously atone for it later. <laughs> but they, he just eats a live squid because he's been... Uh, he's been like locked up in a room for a long time and he's like is this what we do now and they're yeah. like what uh, go see old boy I don't know if you should see the new one I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say yes or no I won't recommend it I heard it was bad and I don't see it on I'm the unaware. list it's not on the list and right. I heard it was bad so but we like Josh Brolin and his oh, dad James Brolin we love Josh Brolin at some point James Brolin was the like the host of Beyond Belief when Jonathan Frakes took a break so yeah I don't know what that means. Okay, those are our two recommendations. Uh, we'll be here for another five hours talking about all the other good movies on there. Um, maybe we'll just we'll just do this again. There's no problem with yeah, honestly, dipping back in. But uh, now it's time for another segment of. So apparently, the snack attack is also a name that's already been taken. So this is just going to be called seasons season snacks with, seasons eating with, with Bob and Mike. Uh, we have two summer snacks today uh we have two snacks that are in the same category of summer season that do not belong in the same genre because one of them is a sparkling water we got waterloo sparkling water summer berry naturally flavored with other natural flavors it smells like it's naturally flavored with other natural flavors how would you describe the, the bouquet besides saccharine and artificial <laughs> yeah um Right, it tastes like, um, or, or, sorry, not taste. It smells like someone just like threw a strawberry across the room. Right. It's okay. Now we've got Lay's. They just you, you get just you get the hint. This is Lay's summer BLT limited summer flavor. I'm gonna just waft that for a second. It was like I had to take yeah, I had to take. <laughs> It smells like somebody left their BLT outside. Like, it smells like dog food. Yeah, it's a bad smell. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're gonna... What do you... I don't want the one to affect the other. Which one should we have first? I think the water will be easier to start. Okay. It'll be easier to clean off the palate. Well, I feel like an asshole because these lays are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess you shouldn't judge a chip by its odor <laughs> is, the, is the takeaway here. I also, like, I feel bad This this water is incredibly subtle i was worried it was going to be like uh like a raspberry flavored popsicle where i love the flip i love eating raspberries but Mm -hmm. like anytime it's flavored it's it's too saccharine it's too gross um no the water works pretty well so both of these are the lay's potato chip tastes good and the water isn't overpowering which one is a better summer themed uh Victual? What would I say here? Yeah, uh, summer, not a snack. comestible. Yeah, food stuff. Um, oh man. Hmm. The my only argument which food, is that which, uh, 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 let's clarify that. which food works better as a summer snack, mm. or which food nails specifically the summer theme as its flavor. Ooh, I would say summer flavor. Because okay. they literally, they go out of their way. This is a summer berry, not a not a mixed berry. Oh, even though it's yeah, clearly right. just mixed berries. 
It's just three really... St- it's a blackberry, raspberry, and blueberry. It's a pretty standard berry. And this Lay's has the word summer twice and summer flavor. Summer BLT flavored, summer limited summer flavor. When you think BLTs, do you think summer? No. Okay. No. Do you think mixed berries? No, because I feel like... Uh, Some of those know. are it's fall, 20, right? I feel like I can get blueberries year-round. Yeah. Blackberries are a fall fruit. I don't I'm know. sure you're going to see your raspberries on sale more in the summer, but yeah, I can get, the, get them things at Schnucks year-round. This is hard. I don't know how to go. This is tough. I feel... Hmm. I really don't want to like these chips because it seems like they're pandering. Um, they're trying really hard a, with the branding, with the advertising. This is a, a BLT is not a summer snack. But it tastes good. It tastes good. good. <laughs> and I, yeah. would, I would eat one of these on a picnic. But yeah. also, this I this is the a... The water's nice. It's very refreshing instead yeah. of, like, cloying. I think I'm going to give it to the water. All right. I will, That's too. That's summer-themed... Just because it's so it's so light and refreshing. I mean, what is... Is bacon summer? There's or tomatoes there's summer? A, tomatoes are summer. When you look at the bag... The first, like the the front part, is a white onion. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Your twelve o'clock dead center vegetable is a giant white onion. And then one piece of bacon, and then a like a bag of lettuce. <laughs> Two, <laughs> three tomatoes, a little bit more lettuce, and then some bread. I don't know why. And then some more onion. This doesn't make sense. The branding is off. The chip is good. They got to do better branding. Maybe right. that's what's affecting me. Yeah, I'm just not buying the summer aspect of it. Like, I would almost buy, like, um, um, a uh, Sunship Garden Salsa would, I think, almost be or a just better call summer. It picnic BLT. Right, Which yeah. is still, again, not... But BLT, food, right. <laughs> picnic bacon. Bacon isn't a summer food. Just if I'm going to associate bacon with any season, which I don't... Naturally. It's gonna be a colder season yeah i've had them primarily in the fall yes um well i'm i hope you're ready for all that bacon blt talk because you got it um this is the end of the podcast now bob are you ready to recommend anything to our listeners um i'll recommend um or plug or recommend i'll plug sun chips garden salsa chips they're so good. Yeah, they're, they're the best. They're one. really good. They're the best on chips. And uh, we got uh, well, today's uh, late June. We got a lot more summer left, so plenty of time to eat that summer snack. Yeah. All right. Get out there and eat those summer snacks, everybody. Uh, this has been comparing apples to oranges. Oh, Bob, I got a new um, way to sign off. So this has been Mike. This is Bob. Remember, when you're comparing apples to oranges, it's all fruit. little tune you just heard was uh from the original soundtrack for punch drunk love called he needs me by john bryan 
Thanks for listening to the episode. This was number 65. Had to do a little bit of editing for our, our furry friend Uno. Kept coming in and making some mischief. Bob was very patient, and we hopefully got a lot of that. Thanks to Bob. And um, go ahead and check out all of the show notes for all of the fun stuff that we mentioned in the episode, including that commercial with Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's kind of out of this world. The blogger site is up to date with all past episodes of the podcast. Check it out at thecatopodcast.blogspot.com. Any comments or ideas for future episodes of the podcast, send it to it's at the Cato Podcast for Twitter, all one word, or email us at catopodcast at gmail.com. That's C-A-T-O for comparing apples to oranges, by the way. Our intro, outro, and music bed music was Thumbs Up by the artist Leisure B. Great guy. Go ahead and check his stuff out at humanworkshop.com. Catch you next time. Bye.